And another thing And another thing Welcome to another episode of An Another Thing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tony Clement. Jody Jenkins sends his regrets. Something has come up at the last moment. I'm sure we'll have him back on the program in a week's time. But in the meantime, we shall carry on. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors right off the top. John Mutton and the gang at Municipal Solutions, our presenting sponsor, Ontario's leading MZO firm. Of course, you know by now that they are great for development services, project management, development approvals, even permit expediting, planning services with municipalities, engineering services, architectural services, even things like minor variances and land severances. Go to municipalsolutions.ca, talk to John or one of his colleagues, and they will set you up right And we continue to be sponsored by The Harris Legacy. Yes, the latest book about Mike Harris is called The Harris Legacy, Reflections on a Transformational Premier. You can order the book at theharrislegacy.ca or go to your favorite bookstore. Really talking about how in Ontario we're living in Mike Harris's province uh, as a result of his consequential premiership. Essay contributors include David Frum, Jack Mintz, Gordon Miller, who's a former environment commissioner, David Hurley, and more. It's edited by Alistair Campbell. He was on the program a couple of months ago now to go go to theharrislegacy.ca to learn more. And then we want to thank our terrestrial radio sponsor, that is to say, Hunter's Bay Radio, Muskoka's radio station, The Bay 88.7. Every Saturday morning, they have a suite of podcasts that they rebroadcast, including and another thing podcast. Go to huntersbayradio.com to learn more. Today, we are very pleased to have a returning guest, Gary Marr, the Honorable Gary Marr, I should say, former Alberta cabinet minister in the Ralph Klein days. Uh, consequentially, he was also appointed after that stint as uh, the Alberta agent in Washington, D.C., in the United States of America. And uh, he currently uh, serves as the head of the Canada West Foundation in Calgary. Welcome, Gary Marr. Thanks for having me on. Gary, you may not remember this, but you are a return guest. I do recall. Uh, actually, I was one of your earliest guesses, I recall. You were. It was February the 10th, 2020. That's like four years ago. That is a remarkable record that uh, you continue to do this. <laughs> it, I mean, it's amazing, Tony. And I have to say, the podcast has gotten better and better over the last four years. Well, thank you very much for saying so. I actually sent uh, Jody uh, a uh, an analysis of, of podcasts uh, uh, that just came out, and there's something like 7 million podcasts on Spotify. But the ones who actually have multiple episodes uh, over a over a fairly substantial period of time is very small. It's very small. Uh, so so that's that tells you something. People go into the podcast business, and then they 
they don't, they can't, they can't stick with it. I, I, you know, I'm being honest. People ask me what, uh, you know, what, what would you recommend? I'm thinking of starting a, a podcast. What would you recommend? I just say consistency. Oh yeah, here it is. Um, yeah. The number of active, uh, this is on, uh, the ones who they, they did a survey of 500,000 interview pace based shows so that you do an interview of the 500 and 500,000, only 113 were active, uh, and o- only 2.95% have 200 episodes. We're almost at 200 right now. So it's just interesting. Um, the, the podcast business, of course, exploded, but um, you know, it, it, we feel that we're giving a product that is still relevant and consequential four years later. So all of which is to say it's great to have you on the program. Yeah, well, no, look, I mean, let me just make this observation. Uh, the success of a podcast depends upon, uh, one, its relevancy. Number two, its um, its timeliness. And number three, uh, the caliber of the guests that you have and, and the caliber of the questions that you ask. If you got, you know, those four things together, I think that's going to lead to success. And, you know, your consistency, as you say, um, you know, breeds more and more uh, listenership and uh, doesn't surprise me that you're close to episode 200. Well, it's a real honor to have you on the program, as I said, and we do have lots to talk about. This uh, interview request came as a result of a conversation we were having about uh, Canada-U.S. relationship. And of course, uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau announced a few weeks ago an, a, a, a sort of a whole of government Team Canada approach, uh, kind of as a response to the possibility that Donald Trump may well be the next president of the United States again, and um, wanting to get ahead uh, of the issues that might affect Canada, trade issues, diplomatic issues, uh, you name it. So I just thought it would be great to get your perspective on it as uh, the former Alberta agent in DC. You know DC very well, the politics there on Capitol Hill and in the Oval Office. What did you think about that announcement? Uh, Was it necessary? I think it's always a good idea to be engaged with your biggest trade partner. I mean, we, uh, you know, we have a couple billion dollars a day of trade that crosses the border every single day of the year. And uh, this is important for all of Canada. Uh, and to have a Team Canada approach, I think, is a really good idea. We want to be singing from the same song sheet. We want to be singing the same songs. Um, but if you look at the composition of who Team Canada is, I mean, there have been other sort of media commentators that say this actually looks more like Team Trudeau and not really like Team Canada. And so if you look at the choir masters, um, you know, they largely come from Ontario and Quebec. Uh, some estimable people, I don't, I don't uh, besmirch their reputations at all, but it certainly does not look like um, a Team Canada approach that it encompasses all of Canada. Right. So, uh, I, I would say, you know, the idea is a good one, right. um, but you've got to have uh, a choir master that understands all of Canada and the songs that are written on the song sheet have to be written by all of Canada. And, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the prime minister would be well advised to talk to two very, very successful former ambassadors. Uh, one is Frank McKenna, mm-hmm. uh, who of course was the premier of 
New Brunswick, and then the other is uh, Premier Dewar, right. who was the Premier of the province of Manitoba. In both cases, um, they understood the importance of subnational governments engaging with each other. And so in a very real way, when, when they were both appointed as ambassadors, they were ready on day one for the job because um, you know they understood that the person who is a state legislator today might become tomorrow's uh, congressman. Uh, today's governor might be tomorrow's um, you know cabinet secretary or perhaps a U.S. senator. Right. Uh, these are important relationships to have. And um, so I think one thing that would be missing uh, in this approach is bringing in the provinces that have real and tangible connectivity to um, many of uh, the, the states that they, that they do business with already. So the best customer you have is the one that you can keep happy. And, and so uh, the overall idea of a Team Canada mission is a good one. Um, its execution uh, looks a little short to me in mm. terms of uh, doing the right thing, but um, the idea is a very good one. Do you think that that recently um, Premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith, made her own Washington trip, visiting senators, uh, congresspeople, uh, other you know players on the Washington D.C. scene, talking talking up the province of Alberta, the oil and gas industry, obviously, and other things that Alberta has to offer? Do you think it, that was kind of made necessary because? Uh, because there wasn't really representation uh, on this Team Canada approach? Well, I'd say this. I mean, the Alberta government's been doing this for some time. I was Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs back in 2006 uh, when we appointed Murray Smith as our first Alberta representative in Washington, D.C. At the time, there were 13 offices that I was responsible for around the world. Mm. Twelve of them were all about trade and trade infrastructure, trade investment, uh, investment attraction, but one was about political advocacy. And a lot of people think that it was about oil and gas. In fact, it wasn't. It it started over bovine spongiform encephalopathy oh. and uh, and the the U.S. ban on um, on beef exports because of mad cow disease. And Premier Klein felt that it was very important that you know Alberta uh, be engaged with. Um, the folks who uh, were the decision makers, the policy makers in the United States and telling our story. Um, and it wasn't particularly well covered um, by the embassy at the time. And so right. Premier Klein decided to open up an office there. And since that time, uh, other offices of provincial governments have opened up. The province of Quebec has an office in D.C. The province of Ontario has an office there. Um, and uh, you find increasingly that provinces are engaged in subnational government organizations like um, the Council of State Governments, right? National Governors Association. Um, you know, I like attended the, one of those uh, National Governors Association meetings as an MP. Yeah. Uh, again, to to and that again, it was a multi-partisan approach where uh, liberal and conservative. I think there might have been an NDP or, uh, along for the ride as well. Would would there be there to advocate for Canada as a as a whole delegation? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's the right kind of approach. I think uh, you know uh, you know an all all party nonpartisan approach to dealing with the United States is important because 
we frankly don't know who's going to be the next president of the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. Will it be Joe Biden? Um, uh, you know, barring perhaps a, a you know a health issue. I mean, he appears to be the candidate who will uh, lead the Democrats into the next election. Or will it be Donald Trump? And again, barring uh, legal circumstances uh, or uh, a health condition, it appears that he will be the candidate for the Republican Party. And so I think it'll be important that um, regardless, we have to prepare as Canada, we have to prepare for whoever is going to be the next president of the United States and understand, you know, uh, how we can mitigate the downsides um, because both uh, Mr. Biden and Mr. Trump and both Republicans and Democrats have, um, have expressed more interest in, uh, you know, in uh, trade protectionism in right. one way, shape, or form. And uh, so we have to be able to mitigate the downside of that and then look at where the opportunities rest as well. So as an example, uh, with Mr. Biden recently, you know, putting a, a pause on the building of more LNG export terminals. Yes. I think he has properly come to the conclusion that um, – LNG is not a bridge fuel. It, in some cases, it is the fuel. It is the destination. And you never hear Mr. Biden talk negatively about oil and gas. So the United States today is the largest producer of oil in the world and the biggest and number one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Number one. So um, I think it would be prudent for, under, for us to understand that if, if Mr. Biden decides to stop exporting more natural gas, does that yield an opportunity for Canada? And and also in terms of looking at the upside opportunities, um, you know, uh, there's about 2,800 kilometers, or sorry, 2,800 meters, meters. Uh, of the Trans-Canada or the uh, Trans-Mountain Expansion yeah. Pipeline yeah. Uh, that need to be completed. And once that's done, uh, what opportunity does that look like? I mean, does it mean We'll be exporting more to refineries in Los Angeles, or are we going to be exporting it abroad? What will it mean for the price? And you know, how do let's, we let's peel back the onion a little bit for sure. our audience because uh, I know you're very well aware of what this means. But that uh, just to tell tell our audience a little bit about what the Trans Mountain Pipeline is and and the completion of that pipeline, what does that mean for the Canadian economy? Well, it's significant because uh, oil and gas energy makes up about 12 or 13% of the total gross domestic product of Canada. Uh, when I went to Washington as our representative in 07, about 11% of U.S. Um, oil imports were from Canada. By the time I left, it was closer to 18%. Today, it's over 50%. And so this is a huge part of our GDP um, in Canada is exports of oil um, and natural gas, I might say. And so the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the original one, is about 50 years old, and its capacity is about just under 300,000 barrels a day. Uh, The TMX, or Trans Mountain Expansion, is on the existing pipeline right-of-way, mostly, not completely, but mostly, and it, it is a larger caliber pipeline um, uh, with, you know, all of the um, significant um, safety measures associated with newer 
technology, and it will increase the total capacity to about 900,000 barrels a day. That right. is a lot of oil. And even now, um, the portions of the pipeline that are complete are being filled up now. So the pipeline itself contains millions of barrels of oil. And once the final 2,800 meters is complete, um, you know, that pipeline goes to Tidewater and it is available for export, not just to the United States, but, you know, other parts of the world as well. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite significant and it's, it's just around the corner. Now, I just want to add a little bit of politics to our discussion because you were talking about uh, how important it is to have a strategy as Team Canada for whomever the upcoming administration is going to be. At the same time, I must say, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, Justin Trudeau as Liberal Party leader and as a politician has decided that uh, his best chance of electoral success presumably next year in the next federal election, is to paint Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives as the MAGA party, as the Trump party, uh, and uh, the, the place that uh, where it, extreme right-wing views are being housed. Now, uh, he was called on the carpet. I've, I've, I've been told that Frank McKenna, you mentioned him earlier, as a former New Brunswick liberal premier, former uh, U.S. Uh, Canada Canadian ambassador to the U.S. Uh, has contacted the Trudeau Liberals and said, "Don't do that. That you're actually hurting our chances of of a, of a working relationship with a future Trump administration." David McNaughton, a liberal, uh, former Canadian ambassador to the U.S., has said that publicly that this is not a wise strategy to uh, invoke MAGA politics. Uh, in a very pejorative way uh, as part of our election cycle and then expect that we're going to get along uh, with a Trump administration. I'd, I'd love to hear your reaction to this. Well, uh, I, I agree with both of the ambassadors that this is not the right strategy. I mean, one of the things that's coming up for renewal is, you know, call it what you will, I mean, uh, Donald Trump called it uh, USMCA and others call it uh, you know, the Canamex agreement, uh, I still call it NAFTA. So sure. the North American Free Trade Agreement is coming up for renewal in a couple of years. And here's what we know and here's what we don't know. Uh, we know that uh, uh, the uh, AMLO, the uh, president of Mexico, uh, Mr. Obrador, will not be uh, around because he is term limited. Uh, so we have no idea uh, who the party who will be negotiating on behalf of Mexico will be in the United States. We don't know who the next president is going to be. Um, and in Canada, uh, who knows, there may be a change in, in prime minister by the time that the NAFTA uh, renegotiations come up. So there's a right. lot of unknowns that are out there. That's for starters. But in, in, in the case of either Mr. Biden or Mr. Trump, I think uh, every trade agreement carries with it trade irritants. Uh, and, um, you know, one of the trade irritants, uh, and we've seen this recently, where the United Kingdom has um, withdrawn from negotiations for a free trade agreement with Canada. Now, that's not a, it's not a terrible outcome because 
we already have two trade agreements uh, mm-hmm. that we sometimes don't think about. One is the TPP, which Britain is a part of, and uh, also the um, the WTO, which Britain is a part of. So we do have two trade agreements, although there were obviously specific things that were uh, trying to be negotiated in, in the UK um, Canada free trade agreement. But what Britain said was that they were withdrawing largely because of supply management of dairy. And this for sure is going to be a trade irritant regardless of who the USTR, the US trade representative is uh, for either Mr. Biden or for Mr. Trump. And uh, it, it is it, it is always, from my perspective, when we're negotiating free trade agreements, uh, we always start with one hand tied behind our backs as Canada right. uh, because of supply management. And, um, you know, it, it, it would be challenging. Uh, these dairy quotas are valuable, um, but they are harming our overall ability to uh, move forward on trade agreements. And, you know, tens of thousands of dairy farmers being placed ahead of the interests of tens of millions of Canadians. And and, and I th- I dare say uh, when when you're trying to do these trade deals, it always seems to be the sticking point. You know, I think New Zealand is is also uh, going to the WTO or something against our our dairy because of the way the Canadian government was uh, still kind of using some sort of mechanism to prevent their dairy from coming into our country or something like that. So that's already an irritant with New Zealand. And uh, you you correctly recognize that this was a concern that the British had. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the access to affordable, safe dairy products is great if you live in the lower mainland of British Columbia and you just drive across the yeah. border and you load up at the Costco that's just on the other side of the border and come back with all your uh, all your dairy and cheese. True. Uh, but you're right. I mean, New Zealand got rid of supply management. They, they you know, uh, uh, had this issue back in the 1980s. And um, some people may be familiar with the name Sir Roger Douglas, but Sir Roger Douglas wrote a book that I think was quite, uh, uh, quite explanatory of the changes that they made. Um, back in the 1980s and 90s, and it's called uh, Unfinished Business. Right. And they right. talked about how difficult it was to get rid of, you know, dairy supply management, but but they had a very compelling reason um, why it was taken out. Was it taken out without a lot of tumult and a lot of opposition of uh, of the industry? Uh, there was a lot of, of uh, dissatisfaction with the government on this. But in the end, um, it, it turned out okay. And so uh, Sir Roger's advice, I, I think, I haven't, I haven't talked to him in many years, but I think Sir Roger's advice would be, uh, yeah, you just got to bite the bullet because it's the, it's the best thing. The idea that if you, have, uh, if you exceed your quota, that you have to dump that milk, literally, yeah. uh, is terrible. I mean, we can't even turn it into milk powder for export to parts of the world uh, that you know, could use um, Canada's capacity for making food. And so this idea that supply management, I understand why it came about in the first place many years ago. The thought was that Canada was too small a market and 
um, and that uh, we were trying to protect an industry. Uh, those that rationale was was sound at the time, but Canada is now a country of forty million people. I think right. we can probably um, stand on our own two feet. Now, looking, uh, I got to keep asking. We got just a few minutes left here, about five minutes, but. Uh, just we talked a little bit about the U.S. Uh, presidential and uh, general election cycle. Uh, are you following that very closely? Uh, more closely than the average Canadian, and I yeah. would say that um, Canadians think they know a lot about the United States, but um, frankly, we don't know as much as we should know or need to know. And uh, so I, I try and follow it closely, but there. There are aspects to it that I think most people find perplexing. You know, the mm. electoral college and how it works is beyond beyond the understanding of most people, including Americans. Um, and the uh, the issue of how boundaries are drawn, uh, you know, uh, gerrymandering is uh, right. is a big part of the U.S. electoral cycle. Every every year that ends in a zero, they do a uh, they do a a, a redrawing of boundaries. Uh, to reflect population changes. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm following it. And in particular, it will be interesting to see what happens in, in some of the swing states that I think are going yeah. to be important to both candidates. It seems like, uh, well, everybody says America has never been so divided. But when you look at, there's very few presidential races, at least, that are very lopsided. You know, uh, I mean, sometimes it's accentuated by the electoral college uh, but at the same time, um, you know, America, it's a, it's all, it's a fifth at max, it's a 53, 47 country. That's at the, at the max, like usually, and now, nowadays we're closer to 50, 50. So, um, I guess that's just a feature, not a bug. Well, and one thing that will make it more interesting is, the caliber of people that might come forward as independent candidates. Right. You know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Right. I don't know how many votes he gets, but is it enough to tip the balance one way or the other, depending on, you know, um, who he draws more support from, from Mr. Trump or Mr. Biden? We don't know. Uh, Joe, um, Joe Manchin, the, uh, the former governor and current U.S. Senator is stepping down from his, uh, his role as in the U.S. Senate and is contemplating uh, an independent third party run. I mean, really, if you think about all the third party candidates that have run from people like John Anderson or uh, Ross Perot, Ross Perot, yeah. right? I mean, uh, uh, for those that remember Ross Perot, uh, he, uh, he he was actually a pretty amazing guy. I think um, that was the most successful third party since uh, Theodore Roosevelt. I would. I, I, I think that's right. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, the, the way the electoral college works um, is almost impossible. Well, right. I will say it's impossible for a third candidate, third party candidate. However, they may hive off enough support from one candidate or the other in order to be able to change the outcome of the election. And so people would argue, you know, Ralph Nader uh, was such a, can you know, such a third party candidate that, you know, resulted in, uh, you know, in a difference in a, you know, presidential election that could right. happen here. Yeah. Um, we don't know. 
and people don't really focus in on that, but that that certainly is a is a possibility. And then, of course, the, there's open question. The uh, the U.S. House of Representatives is so even right now. I think the Republicans have a two person majority right now, uh, and uh, there's I think a two senator majority for the Democrats in the U.S. Senate. So it really is on a razor's edge, isn't it? I think that's true. I think that's true. And it's, you know, my sense of uh, American voters is that they're angry and they want change, Yeah. but they don't know what that means. Uh, I mean, the the economy is going great guns. Uh, Unemployment is, uh, you know, at a low, and yet people don't feel like they're getting ahead in the United States. They're frustrated with, um, you know, some of the, um, some of the challenges that they see in their Congress. I would say, broadly speaking, uh, people are more, you know, people in Congress are often more interested in winning an argument than solving a problem. And you can see the challenges that the current Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, has in sort of uh, garnering votes for, uh, you know, things to go forward on. Um, it, it, is a, it is a very challenging time. Um, in uh, in U.S. politics, hmm. but what we have to do as Canadians is we have to look at it. We need to analyze it. We need to understand what the what the outcomes could be, and we need to have a strategy. and And let me say this: hope is not a strategy. No, no. Um, but uh, we have to have a strategy on how we mitigate the downsides and how we take advantage of the upsides. Last question. And I'm not, I'm not going to hold you to it, but if you had to predict who who's going to win the presidential? Well, <clears throat> Tony, have I ever talked to you about professional wrestling? We'll, we'll end with a talk about professional wrestling. Sure, let's do that. So, so in 2016, I was interviewed by the CBC on live television, uh, and I was asked to um, predict the outcome of the um, the the Republican Party. Um, the presidential um, leadership race. And I talked about pro wrestling and I could tell the, the the moderator from CBC was thinking I'd lost my mind. And I said, you know, Donald Trump has been inducted in the pro, pro wrestling hall of fame. He participated in an event with um, the president of the WWE, um, Vince McMahon, McMahon, who by the yeah. way was the president of stampede wrestling here in the city of Calgary uh, back in the early 1980s, and he took ah. he took what he learned from Stampede Wrestling and created WWF, later WWE. But in this event, and I invite your listeners to look this up on the internet. Um, just Google a Battle of the Billionaires, and in the Battle of the Billionaires, Trump and uh, McMahon had agreed to be represented by um, a gladiator in the ring, and the loser had to have his head shaved by the winner. And if you watch the video, you'll see that Mr. Trump's fighter is losing badly. And Vince McMahon is dancing around the outside of the ring, holding an electric razor. He is bull rushed by Mr. Trump and knocked to the ground. And, you know, um, Mr. Trump, you know, gives him a few good whacks from extra measure. And uh, he comes out uh, of that looking triumphant, raising his hands in victory. Uh, and then out of the audience comes a guy, he, he rips his shirt off. He's got a referee's jersey on underneath and it's Stone Cold Steve Austin. Ah. Stone Cold rolls into the ring. He conks the referee um, and, uh, and and knocks him out. And then he helps Trump's fighter take down 
uh, McMahon's fighter. And because he's the only one wearing a referee's jersey, um, he counts him one, two, three, you're out. And he raises Trump's uh, fighter, uh, raises his arm to declare him the winner. So if you keep watching, you'll see that Mr. Trump gets to shave. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what's McMahon. left of Vince McMahon's hair. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, the reason why I tell that story um, is because Mr. Trump has learned every lesson from professional wrestling and he's applied it to politics in a way that we've never seen before. And in 2016, I was saying, look, um, in pro wrestling, you're either a hero or a heel. And if you're a hero, it sounds like this. America's not great, but it's not your fault. It's the fault of the Chinese or immigrants, uh, or it's the fault of Mexicans. Uh, if you are uh, the hero, um, you, you actually don't have to be uh, ad adhere to rules. Um, you demean your opponents, and it sounds like this. You know, that's lying Ted or crooked Hillary or little Marco. That's yeah. how you demean your opponents is with nicknames. You, you shout out things to the audience. Um, and there are often three word slogans. And it sounds like this, lock her up, uh, build a wall or make America great. And uh, if you are a hero, then your fans follow you. They care not about your lack of charisma or your boastfulness or uh, whether you cheat or not, because you're the hero and I'm your guy. And I'd say that Mr. Trump has taken uh, all the lessons from pro wrestling and applied it to politics. We'd never seen it before. No. I mean, you'll recall that Jeb Bush was completely incapable of responding to Mr. Trump's taunts and his, you know, his, uh, his campaign strategy. Um, you know, if you think about it, build a wall. There's a lot of public policy that you can pack into three words, but generally speaking, um, you know, public policy that you can put on a t-shirt is generally not very good, but it does sell. And yep. it, let me make this point. Sometimes you look at the, the current prime minister of Canada and you think, you know, in some ways he is like Donald Trump in terms of his performance art. Um, you know, he, he, Oh, I've been saying that for years. People look at me aghast when I say the most Trumpy guy we have in Canadian politics right now is Justin Trudeau. So, I mean, if you asked uh, the prime minister about, you know, his policy on, uh, you know, on, uh, on the environment, uh, you know, he would, he would use a three word phrase, you know, tax on pollution. And for most Canadians, they, they look at that and they say, well, you know, I'm not a polluter, you know, I'm a responsible Canadian that that's sure. probably okay. I don't, I'm, I don't mind that. And, um, you know, but if you were to ask for what that means, what a, you know, a price on carbon means in terms of the cap and trade system or, um, you know, or uh, something that looks like the tier system in the province of Alberta. You know, what does a price on carbon look like and what do you do with the revenue? Um, you know, and it, 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 I think that most people wouldn't be, um, wouldn't be well, well, um, well versed in what the details of that right, right, yeah, no, that's that's a very good point, Gary Marr. We're going to have to leave it at that, my friend. Uh, thank you for coming on the program, and uh, 
uh, enlightening us a little bit on uh, that strange beast that is the United States of America. You're you're a keen observer. I do want to thank our sponsors once again, MunicipalSolutions.ca, John Mutton and the gang, TheHarrisLegacy.ca, the book, The Harris Legacy, Reflections on a Transformational Premier, and finally, our terrestrial radio sponsor, HuntersBayRadio.com. We'll see you again in just a few days.